This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Domenech podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and give it a recommendation to your friends if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with one of the more prominent members of the new Republican Congress. His name is Patrick McHenry, and whether you've heard of him or not, he plays a significant role in terms of the path forward on a number of critical counts, including his role as the new chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. He's someone who also played a critical role in helping Kevin McCarthy become speaker. He was at one point uh, the youngest member of a congressional class, and he's thought about uh, leaving the body in the past, but decided to stay around uh, for this Congress once Republicans came back into power in order to help guide a lot of his fellow uh, Congress people who are new to the fray uh, through all of the different rules, regulations, and the way that the body really ought to work. We talk about a number of different issues, beginning with China and uh, the fallout from the Chinese spy balloon and some other questions surrounding uh, the relationship between America and China. And then we move on to a number of fiscal questions that are right in front of Republicans, including the battle over the upcoming uh, debt limit. Patrick McHenry, coming up next. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Congressman, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Great to be with you. Thanks. I want to talk to you about a number of things, but first off, I got to ask you: uh, you, when you were first elected, uh, were I believe the youngest member of Congress at the time, uh, which means that you have seen a lot. Uh, and I know that there was some discussion about whether you were going to come back for another go round uh, at certain points. Um, how have you not gotten tired of Congress when so many other people have over the portion of time that you've been there? Um, no, I, I'll tell you, the, the fact that the job is ever-changing. Um, I um, spent most of my time working on policy, and then I served uh, in leadership for five years as chief deputy whip, which is kind of the COO of the counting operation uh, of getting votes on the floor. And now I'm back at committee doing policy uh, in the minority for four years and now in the majority. And those there are such different jobs. 
And so while I've been here for 18 years, I've had um, at least four distinct jobs um, here in Congress. And that's what keeps it interesting. And then the change of people. I like people. I like policy. Um, and uh, we're obviously all sport to politics. So the, the fact that I get to do this um, and I can actually, um, uh, you know, pay my mortgage and, and feed my family, it's like it's pretty cool. It's, it's very cool to be a part of it. So um, that's what keeps me going is the opportunity to actually make a difference and to make a change and and have attempt to have an, an impact. I uh, want to talk about a number of different issues with you, but first off, this uh, week you had this hearing on China that seems to be, you know, one of the things where there is a rare uh, element of bipartisan consensus in certain mm-hmm. areas of policy as it relates to China, or at least in terms of, of attitude toward uh, dealing with some of the problems and uh, the challenges that we face in dealing with them. Coming in the aftermath of this spy balloon that you know uh, the whole country seemed to wake up to and be obsessed with uh, as it traversed our shores, do you think that there is going to be an opportunity to make some distinct uh, shifts in policy that push back against Chinese dominance in certain areas? Yes, and I think we have to uh, write a new rule book of our engagement with China. Um, the investments they are able to make here in the United States um, – the things that they're able to access here in our markets. But I think we have to approach this from a principle, uh, a principles-based um, thought process. Um, I think what we have to do is make sure that uh, we don't advantage um, China and our marketplace, uh, that we make sure that their diplomatic efforts uh, through indebting the third world to them um, and a number of other functions that they're trying to uh, put in place uh, through uh, d- diplomatic and economic ties, that we disadvantage them in the international community. And then third and finally, we've got to make ourselves better. Uh, and that means we've got to be a better version of ourselves with free markets, um, competitive uh, marketplace, constitutional rights, property rights, speech rights, free speech rights. So we've got to be a better version of ourselves to outcompete. Uh, they're centralized, we're decentralized. And we need to double down on that distinction our open market will win out. And our, it's our free markets, though, that it gives us this power. Um, so we have to make sure that we, that we cut out the parasite uh, without sacrificing the host. Mm-hmm. And that parasite is clearly China. And that host that is um, allowing them to grow stronger, that's access to our markets. And, and so we have to think about this in a very different way, especially in light of their, their uh, really aggressive public uh, actions they've taken against us. And, and the balloon is really the best, um, best example of their disdain for, for, um, uh, for us. The president uh, sounded some notes in the State of the Union. Many commentators have said uh, that sound uh, a lot like former President Trump in, in certain ways mm-hmm. about the importance of uh, kind of national policy and buying American and, you know, obviously members of his party have stressed the importance of onshoring and different things like that. The idea of you know too many jobs having walked away over the course of the uh, past several decades when uh, I think the president sometimes acts as if he was not in politics. Uh, there obviously is, you know, some things that sound the same, 
But there are also, you know, different approaches that could be viewed as very anti-free market. How do you uh, solve that problem? How do you give the kind of results that Americans seem to have a political appetite for uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of these outcomes without sacrificing those free market principles that you just talked about? We have to lead. We have to lead by example with policy that that drives that conversation. Uh, Speaker McCarthy made the decision to set up the China Select Committee that Mike Gallagher is going to head. Um, that vote to set up a China Select Committee uh, included all Republicans voting yes and a majority of the Democrats in the House voting yes. So that shows that there's inclination uh, to to a more concerted effort against China or to counter China. Um, but what we have to do is lead with policy and votes and drive the conversation and, if needed, embarrass Democrats into doing the right thing to counter uh, the Chinese efforts. Mm-hmm. But I, as I said, with the, the principles-based approach, I think we have to take, uh, we have to focus on making sure that we're a better version of ourselves. We can't be more centralized and try to outcompete them on centralizing. Communists will always win on that. Um, and so we have to make sure that we're a better version of ourselves to outcompete them uh, for the next generation, for the next 50 years. You know, there's a lot of concern, I think, that at the end of the day, even with bipartisan consensus in certain aspects of uh, this China situation, Congress has been so incapable of getting things done in a big way uh, for so many years on so many fronts that this will be another missed opportunity. Uh, How do you avoid having that happen? And what are some of the areas where you could see a significant number of Democrats coming along with a pro-market solution or something that uh, you would be in favor of and your fellow fiscal conservatives would be in favor of? Um, well, in my committee, I think we're, we'll, we'll focus on the Financial Services Committee. Uh, when we have sanctions, we need to have specific sanctions against specific companies um, and specific people. Uh, this is what uh, uh, the President Trump's executive order did was uh, use our national security database and national security information and make sure that's communicated with the Commerce Department. So the Department of Defense has a list uh, of uh, malign actors and their individuals and companies. And then the Commerce Department doesn't use that same list. So we need to use the best information uh, and target the worst actors here. The fact that we're still debating whether or not to cut TikTok off from extracting data from uh, Americans uh, shows the absurdity of our current process. We've got to go clean this thing up. Mm-hmm. But it's a rules-based regime that includes people's ability to have uh, to object and a legal process to do that. And so that's very much consistent with American policy, uh, and it gives people rights uh, to make decisions. And it doesn't simply put that in the hands of the government to make decisions for the private sector. So that's the type of reform uh, in one segment we need to take on. When it comes to national security and microchips and how we purchase and where we purchase, trade agreements make a big difference. You look at USMCA aligning Mexico and Canada, our closest neighbors and trading partners with us. President Trump did that. Um, And he built on bipartisan work for the last 30 years on trade policy. So you can open up markets, but also strengthen American manufacturing and American competition. And I think we're at a better balance now 
um, as Republicans than we were 10 years ago, frankly. And I think that's the type of engagement we have that don't sacrifice, that doesn't sacrifice our market and opens up new opportunities for people to be more aligned with us in this competition with China. One last China question before we move on to other things. You, you bring up TikTok. It seems to me obvious that you know the vast majority of people who are active in politics in Washington are well aware of the national security concerns, the intelligence concerns related to TikTok. Uh, but it also seems to me that the broader American community of TikTok users, and more importantly, the parents of TikTok users, are less aware of that. They're more aware of the damage that it's doing to a lot of their teenagers, to particularly teenage girls, where, you know, TikTok use has been tied in ways much larger than other social media actors, depending on the studies that you believe, to, you know, higher rates of gender dysphoria, higher rates of, uh, you know, issues with eating disorders and the like, a number of other sort of mental health issues that are of concern to parents, to moms and the like. How can people who are concerned about TikTok from a national security perspective expand that conversation to the people who are concerned about it more from a mental health and the health of their teenagers perspective? Um, Well, I think it's a work of communicating. Um, And that is a, a, a cultural Understanding we have to have uh, of what uh, certain uh, certain types of social media uh, does to young people um, and what we're doing to young people um, with bad policy uh, and cutting them off from the world and engagement with their peers directly and putting them in a, into a digital setting is has been quite harmful over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I subscribe to the belief, uh, and somebody else coined this this term, but that TikTok is cultural fentanyl. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just nasty stuff, um, and it's and it's hurting Americans. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there are a number of reasons why we should take action against TikTok, but national security being part of it. But the the the, the harmful impact on mental health and um, and suicide rates is 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 a real one. It's been it's been well measured. So uh, raising awareness, I think, is, is highly important. So let's talk about, obviously, the conversation around the debt ceiling is one uh, where you're put in the position of being a significant figure on this for all manner of reasons. And we've heard the demagoguery on this from the White House and from the president and the State of the Union. We've heard the pushback. Uh, from Republicans on, uh, you know, entitlements not being a major part of this discussion. At the same time, don't Medicare and Social Security need reform in order to be around when you and I actually need it? Yes. Um, (laughs) So the debt ceiling, yes, I agree. Um, And the absurdity of the uh, uh, State of the Union speech, not to mention how disjointed and bizarre moments were, um, But this idea that the president wouldn't negotiate around the debt ceiling, um, he forgot about him. He was vice president and negotiated on behalf of President Obama around two debt ceiling, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, two major debt ceiling negotiations. Um, In fact, it was uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi and uh, Leader Schumer that went to negotiate with President Trump in the Oval Office around the debt ceiling. And what they demanded was a spending increase uh, and, and demanded that of President Trump. 
Um, so from uh, from, you know, for the last 40 years, 50 years, the debt ceiling has been the moment in time where Washington takes stock of its fiscal house, of our spending, our ability to pay for that spending, our debt and our deficits. And that is where we are as well. I think it's only responsible and only reasonable to take stock of our fiscal house when we're debating fiscal matters. Um, and so the debt ceiling and government funding are ones where we have to figure out whether or not we can afford the government that we currently have. That government is 30 percent larger than it was before COVID. That government is taking in record amounts of income, $4.9 trillion this year. That is $1.7 trillion more than what was predicted when we passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Record revenue, record federal spending, and record deficits for as far as the eye can see. And we have important social programs, Medicare, um, Social Security, that will be going broke in the next decade. And when they go broke on, under operation of law, if we do nothing, the, the folks that have paid into those systems will see benefit cuts. And so I think that's not the responsible thing to do for those that are on Social Security or that are at or near retirement age. So I think we have to look at those programs and to see how we put them on a sustainable path for future generations. Mm -hmm. And then also see our revenue, which is at record highs as a percentage of the economy and amounts. And how do we pull in that spending within the confines of our ability to pay for it? This is not groundbreaking stuff. Uh, this is just uh, responsible budgeting or closer to responsible budgeting than what we've had in the last generation in Washington. You know, you mentioned generations. You're a Gen Xer. Mm -hmm. Historically, no generation has uh, has redistributed more wealth from the rest of America to itself than the baby boomers. Uh, it's 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 not even close. I mean, they'll it'll never be topped. I don't believe and they are, you know, at historic levels of wealth as a generation, particularly compared uh, to millennials uh, and, you know, who've seen an inability to buy homes, an inability to form families, in part due to the challenges that emerge from the financial crisis and other issues related to that. Why is it that we are so reluctant, other than simple electoral politics, to deal with the hard fact that baby boomers have redistributed far too much money to themselves over the course of years, that they have indulged in this well after the point when retirement ages were moving way up, when lifespans were increasing dramatically, and for programs that were meant to serve people at the very end of life, uh, they are now essentially designed to fund lengthy retirements for these same people. Other than the electoral politics element of this, what's the principle that justifies that? Um, well, uh, power. <laughs> so, I mean, look, the, the fact is... I appreciate is the that, honesty. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad that's not going to get me in trouble. Um, no, the, the fact is you have an 80-year-old in the White House, mm -hmm. um, and you have uh, the Senate Majority Leader and the, now the former Speaker of the House. Um, you, have, you have folks that simply won't retire uh, in the name of keeping power. Mm -hmm. And it's keeping power for themselves, but also for their generation. Mm -hmm. And when you ask folks that are in retirement, 
Do you want to leave your grandkids worse off that in, in your country than you found it? Um, that, that, to me, that should be a part of the debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think we need to think about where we leave America when we're gone. Um, and I think about that context for my kids. I want to leave them better off and more prepared um, and, and a country that is better off and more prepared than, than I found it. And mm-hmm. so I mean, th- this seems to be like outside of politics, a normal conversation that normal people can have. And then you bring it into the political context and it's and it's just um, it's just removed from that sense of responsibility we have to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's try to be like, let's try to be normal people about this and not just uh, political beings. <laughs> you know, that's okay. I can hope at least, right? I can hope. That's that's no, that's a that's too profound of a thought for the Congress, though. I fear. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, you have uh, right now a slew of new members, uh, including much younger members who are arriving in Washington, uh, who have. Uh, many of them little or no uh, political experience. One of the ramifications of uh, the success of uh, former President Trump is that it drew a lot of new people into politics who didn't have uh, political backgrounds or, you know, come from staffing positions and the like. You know, you had the experience of showing up in, in Washington back in the 2000s and adapting to it, you know, as a younger man. What is the thing that you hope that these new members, fresh to the Congress, Learn quickly about the way that the institution works and how can it be guiding them towards something other than simply being a pundit, but with a different pin on their lapel? Well, um, that is the crux of it. If you want to have a platform to be a pundit, you can do it far more easily than getting elected to Congress. I'm proof of that. <laughs> yes, exactly. yes, precisely. <laughs> and it's more liberating. It's far more liberating. Yeah. Um, so, and I find myself doing this. I have to say, well, I'm not a pundit, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a policymaker. I'm a legislator. Um, so what I convey to new members is um, we are legislators primarily, Our craft is legislation, and what we do, whether it's political fundraising, uh, media interviews, oversight, is to drive public policy. Public policy can have a lasting impact, uh, but a tweet doesn't. Well, it can get you into trouble, Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but all those things lead into the ability to legislate, and legislation should be our outcome. So that is the imprint that I want to make during my time in, in office. Mm-hmm. And in this great country, there have been, you know, um, you know, well over 10,000 members of Congress. Um, and I think I'm, I've been constructive uh, in Congress. But when I'm gone, there'll be somebody else. Right. And that's the beauty of, of, of this um, institution is that it renews itself in connection with the needs of the American people over time. But the craft is legislation. And we can't forget that. Um, and so I think that's the primary thing. You want to do punditry? Do punditry. Uh, if you want to only do oversight without some legislative outcome or behavioral change in government, then it's just for show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's my primary focus. Um, that's one. Two, 
you got to work with people as they are and try to bring them to your perspective and see where you can work together. Because in an institution like ours, in the House, with Republican votes, I can pass what I want out of my committee and out of the House floor. I'm confident I can do that. Um, But if I can work with a few reasonable Democrats and build out policy where we have bipartisan votes, then I can go make lasting policy changes. So we've got to work with people. We've got to work with people and hear their perspective and try to figure out where we get compromise that is principle-based. Um, because I seek an outcome that is very specific and goal-oriented. But along the way, happy to work with you as long as we try to achieve a a similar goal. One of the things that you lived through, though, was the decline and fall of the blue dog Democrat, the the culturally conservative, pro-military, but pro-union, big spending type of Democrat that we were all familiar with in the the 90s and, and into the 2000s. You know, those folks are all gone. You know, they, they were the folks who were forcing compromises in the, in the Obamacare fight. You know, it, the cultural sort has really cut off, you know, that uh, that aspect of this. Is it possible to really get Democrat investment when the person who sticks their head, you know, up high enough uh, is going to get slapped by the activist left, you know, for working in any way with those evil Republicans? Well, I think that's why you're seeing rules changes in Congress. It acknowledges the fact that there are fewer folks uh, willing to deal with the other party. And so you see a significant amount of rules changes here in the House to try to further empower the members on the House floor to have an open process and to see what happens, which means uh, we'll have Democrat ideas that are going to get a vote in the House and Republican ideas that get a vote in the House. And people may talk a good game, but you got to show up and vote. Mm-hmm. And there's a red and a green button, and you got to choose. So you may go talk a good game that you are going to be constructive on a particular policy, but when you vote on it and you vote opposite your rhetoric, it gets mm-hmm. proven out. Um, so I think that will be healthy over time. Um, and I think you'll see some interesting things happen this Congress because we have a more open process. And it may actually show that there is cross-pollinization. Um, that there are culturally conservative Democrats somewhere hiding, uh, <laughs> perhaps in plain sight. Maybe. Last question for you, sir. You know, obviously, this is a situation where the Congress uh, does not have the luxury of working with a Republican majority, even a slim one in the Senate. Uh, you obviously aren't going to be able to send as many things because of that to the president's desk. What are the things that you believe ought to be measures of success for this Republican Congress, meaning that at the end of the day, when you are presumably running for re-election and, and, and your colleagues are, that they're going to be able to go out there and point to, we accomplished this, this, and this uh, because you elected us, and this is why you need to send us back. Well, first, let's, let's give context here. With a Republican House, a Democrat Senate, a Democrat in the White House, our ability to achieve lasting conservative change is quite limited. But this year tees up the presidential election and 2025. And in 2025, at the end of 2025, you have the individual tax rates expiring from from, uh, the Trump tax cuts. And you have uh, the big plus-ups that the Democrats did to Obamacare, massive spending um, uh, that they they propped up. And that ends at the end of 2025. So we have a major fiscal cliff there. So what we need to do is make sure that we're driving towards 
that presidential outcome, that uh, electoral outcome for the Senate and the House so that you can have unified control in 25 to tackle that big problem. So we've got to build the oversight process of the value of our tax policy, the value of our economic approach counter to the inflation of of Biden, the Democrats and the overspending of the Democrats. That's really important to tee that up for a policy outcome in 2025. In the meantime, there are things that we can do to help small businesses access credit that I'm focused on the Financial Services Committee and enabling digital innovation through cryptocurrency that I'm focused on in financial services. Areas of uh, data security and data protection against big tech companies and smart policy there that we have an opportunity to move uh, out of the House of Representatives. National security, a focus on national security and returning the intelligence committee that Adam Schiff uh, turned into uh, a, 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 a partisan food fight and getting it back to ensuring Americans protection at home and abroad. There are fundamental things that we can focus on. Finally, a farm bill that uh, helps rural communities and also brings down the, the price of groceries for the average family that's paying dramatically more to feed, you know, to, to feed their family uh, than, than when Biden took office. Um, those things are, I think, achievable things uh, to protect our national security, open up economic pathways that are not currently available and help families in, in real time. Those are the things I think are achievable, this Congress. And those are the things I'm working hard on. Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Great to be with you. Thanks, Ben. More of the Ben Dominich podcast right after this. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So I wanted to share with you all some of this uh, interesting reporting that's coming out over the past couple of weeks, uh, primarily from the Washington Examiner, where my friend investigative journalist Gabe Kaminsky has been doing uh, some pretty impressive work in digging down into the way in which a number of different entities, including entities funded by the U.S. taxpayer, even though they are based overseas, have been going after and targeting conservative publications in ways that many of these publications didn't even uh, know before his reporting began. Just to unpack it a little bit, and you can find his series of reporting uh, at the Washington Examiner, uh, Gabe found that essentially um, one of the major ad services, which is owned by Microsoft, had been relying on the recommendations of uh, a group called GDI uh, that went after disinformation. And this disinfo board was funded through a number of different ways, but primarily through uh, grants from the from the U.S. State Department uh, that flowed into their coffers in order to uh, give them the funding necessary to do this various reporting, which essentially amounted to tagging right of center websites in ways that would prevent advertisers from running ads on them. 
In other words, denying them the kind of uh, normal advertising revenue that other websites, particularly those on the left, uh, just expect. Uh, one example is, uh, that they found, including the Washington Examiner, was of opinion content that they had, which questioned uh, the trans agenda, particularly as related uh, to uh, advocating for trans identities in kids. Uh, they flagged this as being dangerous disinformation and went after the fact uh, that Amazon was advertising on that opinion page. This is the type of thing that happens behind the scenes all the time. Uh, but what really was uncovered by Gabe Kaminsky was that this was far more comprehensive than a lot of people think. It's one thing to flag uh, relatively minor websites, but in this case, they were uh, essentially flagging the entire conservative ecosystem, center-right ecosystem of uh, journalism as being inappropriate for any kind of ads to run on them. And they were doing this behind the scenes, directly to the advertisers, and with taxpayer funding going into their programs via the, the various nonprofit grant making of the State Department and other, and other entities. Obviously, this is something which is of deep concern. And uh, in the aftermath of this reporting, Microsoft announced that they would be uh, taking a pause in their relationship with this global disinformation index uh, and uh, the various people who go into making it uh, and reconsidering the status of these various websites, which is obviously a good thing. But just taken in full, and this is something that I wrote about at The Spectator. Uh, you can find my piece at thespectator.com. The the overall takeaway that we have from the Twitter files reporting by people like Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, who I've interviewed in the past, uh, and people like Gabe Kaminsky, who are now you know reporting this latest material, what, what this all looks like is a system in which taxpayers are paying for their own censorship. Whether it's via, you know, funding the Department of Justice and the FBI, the Intel community, which is flagging various accounts, which it turns out are actually being run by normal American citizens, not being influenced by Russia. They're not Russian bots and the like, but flagging those to Twitter. Uh, who had to essentially decide whether to do what the FBI wanted them to do uh, or to resist them and get into fights. Uh, and we all know how things like that tend to work out. The most powerful uh, intelligence entities, law enforcement entities in the world come to your front door and say, what are you doing to battle uh, you know, hate and misinformation and disinformation online? You better get rid of these accounts. Eventually, you're going to cave. You know, and then, of course, there's the Hunter Biden story and everything that re was related to that, where we had the former Intel community members, uh, former uh, you know heads of the CIA and the FBI uh, saying that that amounted to a clear Russian misinformation, disinformation plot. Again, you know, these are taxpayer funded individuals, at least during their time uh, serving the government. And then you also had, of course, things like Hamilton 68, a dashboard, as they called it, uh, created by the German Marshall Fund uh, and uh, its attendant groups. Again, the German Marshall Fund is overwhelmingly funded by the taxpayers uh, via various grants and uh, congressional uh, allocations of money. And so at the end of the day, you uh, you know, it turns out that Hamilton 68 and, and all of its uh, reporting, which was cited by Every media outlet that you can imagine, the New York Times, NBC, you know, uh, CNN, etc., as being indic in indicative of uh, Russian bot conversations or Russian tilted conversations uh, all around various controversial aspects of, of uh, uh, issues in front of that were trending on social media. 
It turns out that that was complete vaporware, totally invented. Uh, Twitter itself in their own internal discussions knew that it was not accurate in terms of its analysis of what was going on. And yet it was repeatedly cited. Uh, the Republican uh, uh, co- uh, co-head of the program of the Hamilton 68 program is now, in fact, the president of uh, Radio Free Europe. Uh, and a uh, government appointed position, obviously. And there are no consequences for them to have been lying and effectively trying to silence, censor, or deplatform American citizens, again, uh, funded in part uh, by uh, the taxpayers themselves. And then, of course, you have this Kaminsky story about the targeting of publications. So, the targeting of individuals, the targeting of publications, the targeting of conversations and trending topics and hashtags and the like. All at the behest of a, uh, you know, overpowered Intel community, um, some very aggressive partisans who wanted to uh, inject the idea that American citizens saying various things were examples of foreign influence and the like, uh, and even stretching into trying to undermine the very livelihood of these publications that are doing reporting that these entities find to be inconvenient, uh, reporting like showing the uh, ridiculousness of the Russiagate hoax uh, or, you know, pushing back against COVID policies that the these various folks supported. What this story looks like in total is an attempt to cajole, to censor, to silence and to influence conversation via these various uh, entities, uh, big tech, uh, you know, these these ad consortiums uh, and uh, corporate America generally in ways that, you know, the FBI, the DOJ, the Intel community can't legally do themselves. But instead, they can lean on outside groups to try to achieve it. They can try to force it through the process with that explanation as their backing. Uh, and unfortunately, in many instances, they were successful in doing this. The real question for me, beyond wanting to get to the bottom of this, how this was approved and how it played out, is to make sure that this type of thing doesn't happen again. And with a presidential campaign already beginning uh, right in front of us, uh, we can't really have that much confidence that it won't happen again unless major things change. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We will be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.